0: Uh, We're going to continue on in our um, series of the book of John, and we are getting towards the end. So this morning, I'm reading uh, the story of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion from John 18 and 19. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with him with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words that had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Aeneas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest. This is not working for me this morning. Uh, Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. Then the other disciple, who had spoken to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of the man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I'm not. It was cold and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials near, nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Aeneas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a rooster began to grow. And I'm going to read from John 19, verses 16 through 30. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From this time on, the disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit.
1: Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Res City, if it's your first time joining us. Um, we are happy to uh to have you here. I' some trouble with this okay, thank you Zach. There we go. I'm not as tall as you Zach. Not many people are um, <laughs> okay so um Yes, my name is Joel, I'm one of the pastors here at Res City, and uh, a special welcome to you if you're joining us here for the first time today. Our special guest today, Norman Jamie, first time being with us, thank you for being here. And anyone who's joining us online for the first time, thank you so much uh, for worshiping with us this Sunday morning. Um, We are in, uh, as Julie just read for you, we are kind of wrapping up the book of John now. We are getting to the climactic part of the book. Uh, As Dr. Strange might say, we are in the endgame now. Right, and if this, you're not familiar with this, this is actually the name of the last, the latest Marvel Avengers movie. It came out forever ago now, because no movies can ever come out anymore, apparently. Um, but this is the, the kind of the finish of everything that Marvel had been had been going towards, right? The, the movie, and they called it Endgame, and we thought it was kind of fitting to end with the Book of John by calling it the Endgame as well. Everything in the Book of John has been sort of driving towards these moments of what what's going to happen now to Jesus here in the in the crucifixion fiction which we're going to talk about this morning, and then in the resurrection, which we'll talk about next week, and then we'll get a nice, a little epilogue, a little kind of closing to the Book of John, which is unique to the Gospel of John, um, and w- that we will do after that. So we have kind of three, uh, three messages left in this, in this sermon series in John. Now we're skipping a part of it today, that the conversation between Jesus and Pilate, the governor of Rome, and we're actually going to be talking about that after we finish the book of John, as we kind of do a little sermon series to sort of prep us for uh, the political season that's coming up. And we're going to talk about how Christians should engage well uh, with the election as it comes up. And and what Jesus and and Pilate discuss there, I think, actually has a lot of relevance uh, to us. So we'll we'll revisit that uh, a little bit later on. But today, what I want to do is I want to talk through three narrative clues that sort of tell us what, what the significance of what's happening uh, in Jesus's cruci- crucifixion are all right like the, the Gospels are, are different books than like the letters in the New Testament the letters sort of convey information sort of matter-of-factly right sort of just kind of laying it out there for us but the, the Gospels are, are, are telling us about the significance of Jesus's death through narrative through story and so we kind of have to read it a little bit differently and, and kind of see how John is intentional in, in kind of giving us certain information about what character are doing, when and where, and the ironies that he draws out, um, and the specific things that he, he, he lets us know to tell us what the significance of the cross is. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to talk through those three sort of narrative clues, those three details uh, that, that, that where, where John tells us what's going on. All right? So, um, as Julie said, Jesus uh, finishes up the prayer. We talked about this prayer that he prays last week for the unity of all believers. And afterwards, he crosses the Kidron Valley and he goes to this garden that's kind of one of his normal places that he likes to hang out. One of his main hangout spots around Jerusalem. And Judas, know, knowing Jesus likes to hang out there, figures there's a pretty good chance if I grab these soldiers uh, that, 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 that have been given to me to sort of show where Jesus is at, he probably will be there. So he Takes this detachment of soldiers with him, and lo and behold, Jesus is there. Now John tells us that uh, Jesus e- expected this, and so he wanted to be caught. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on, but it's Jesus's plan to have Judas and these soldiers come and and grab him, to be taken by the authorities. And so he heads over to that usual spot, and Judas uh, Judas shows up with a group of this detachment of Roman soldiers, and the reason that a bunch of soldiers show up with him is, is because they are like, this is, tensions are high. Political tensions are high. Uh, the, the Jewish people are always close to revolt and so they have these soldiers that are always here kind of waiting for it. And they expect if you go and you, you, you arrest a Messiah figure, someone who a lot of people are really excited about, it might cause a stir. So they want to have some soldiers there uh, to make sure um, that if a, a, a mob sees this, they don't start an insurrection because of it. All right, so this kind of tees up our first detail, our first sort of narrative clue uh, in, in, this, in this story about uh, what's going on. Okay, And we're going to be talking about the nature of Jesus' victory here. Okay, we, we see this in this part of the book. So right at the very beginning, we get some significance to how Jesus views what's about to take place. In his interaction with Peter... As, as Peter uh, strikes uh, cuts the ear off of this of this uh, soldier, all right so that or not a soldier, actually a uh, servant so let me read that again, Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. the servant's name is, was Malchus, so Peter thinks like he can help Jesus out here he, he thinks Jesus is about to get arrested, he can see the writing on the wall, he knows what's about to take, take place, and he thinks um, hey, I can kind of get this kick-started. I can kind of stop what's about to take place. And I think also, in, in Peter's mind, he has an expectation that Jesus is king, that he's Messiah. And Peter's right about that. But like a lot of people in that time, I think Peter expects Jesus to, to sort of become king, to sort of defeat the enemy through the way that you normally go and defeat enemies and make yourself king, which is sort of uh, conquering the, the world's bullies, going and, and stopping, you know, stopping the Thanoses, kicking the butt of the enemy, right? A good old-fashioned butt-kicking is how Peter expects this to take place, I think, still. Even with all the stuff that Jesus has been trying to get across to his disciples, I still think that's in his mind. Now, there's actually biblical language for what we would call butt-kicking today. And, and, and that would actually be called a cup-pouring. We'd be talking about a cup-pouring to, to kick the butts of the enemies that you might have. And, and this, this recurs in, in the Old Testament several times. And so here's an example, Psalm 75.8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So in the Old Testament, there's this, we hear about God sort of pouring out the cup of his wrath on his enemies, on these these rebel nations, and they experience his justice as he does this. And Peter expects Jesus to do a similar type of cup-pouring, butt-kicking act to sort of take control of Jerusalem here at some point. Okay, so you should picture this this frothing cup, this kind of foaming, right? It's it's bubbling over the cup that it's in. It's just ready to spill all over everything. That's that's what's going here in Psalm 75, 8. And I imagine Peter expects that this is what's going to take place with Jesus as well. Now, it is true that Jesus is going to defeat his enemies through some spilled blood. Peter's not wrong about that. And in Revelation 19, we actually get kind of maybe a picture, a a, a, sort of a a, a eschatological, apocalyptic image of what it looks like for Jesus to defeat his enemies. Revelation 19 um, maybe was written by the same John who wrote the book of John that we're reading now. So there's some some connection here. And there's this, it depicts this great battle. Picture two, two, uh, opposing armies separated by by some battleground in the middle and they're lined up, they're ready ready to go to war with one another. And on one side you have Jesus and you have God's forces and on the other side you have the beast, which is representing the forces that are opposed to God. All right, so picture that in your mind here. Uh, and, and, and Revelation 19 tells us that Jesus shows up and he's riding on a white horse and, and, and it tells us with justice he judges and wages war. So Jesus is about to engage in war injustice. Now, Peter wants this battle. Peter, Peter wants to be the hero of this. And, and I think Peter probably expects the battle to go like this, right? The enemy uh, is, is standing there, and the good guy's charge, just like in the movie Endgame. I, my guess is Peter thinks of himself right in the middle. He'd be like Captain America. I think Peter would like, if, if, if there was ever a guy that uh, Peter probably would em- want to emulate, I bet you Captain America's it, right? He pictures himself right at the middle. A- and, and, and I think he, he expects through this, sheer force of will the enemy is going to be defeated but that's not at all what takes place in revelation 19 that's not how the battle is waged cuz cuz then it moves on and the text tells us that he is dressed Jesus is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of god so what 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 we see here is that the warrior the warrior king who's going to defeat the enemies he's already bloody before the battle even starts he, he's already covered in blood and, and, and the battle has not even started with the enemy. And what, what that's telling us is that the, blo- the blood that needed to be shed in order to win the victory was already shed by Jesus. And in his sacrifice is the way that the battle is won. And actually, if you keep reading in Revelation 19, there's actually no battle. It's like you get the two, the two sides and they're, they're facing each other. And then John just tells us, um, and, and, and he's dipped in blood and, and then it was over. That's basically what happens in Revelation 19. There's actually no great battle, right? Jesus has already won the moment he steps onto the battlefield covered in his own blood. And and so because of all this, because Jesus knows at this time this is the way in which the battle is going to take place, the way in which he's going to become king, he actually rebukes Peter. And in verse 11 we read that Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? He says, he's saying, Peter, the captives are not going to be set free like this. And nothing is going to be solved by you pulling out your sword and trying to, to defeat the bad guys like this. The enemy is only going to be defeated. The people are only going to be set free if instead of the cup being poured out on them, I drink the cup myself sin just creates more bullies. It, just, it turns Peter into a bully as he tries to go fight the bad guys. That, that's what sin does. It turns, it turns us all into the image of the evil that gets done to us. And, and it's a cycle that, that, that we, can't do, we can't do anything about. And so what, what needs to take place is for, for us to be set free, for us to be absolved of the fact that we all get turned into the types of bullies that we hate is, is for Jesus to, to take God's wrath or his justice on himself for us in order to defeat the enemy. And, and, and as if to kind of show that this is what Jesus' expectation is, that the type of king he is is one that, 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 that is not going to let anyone else's blood get shed but his own. He actually heals the guy's ear as if to say like, no, the only blood that is going to get shed today is going to be mine. That's what matters. So after this, Jesus is he's taken from the high, to the high priest's house, and he's questioned. And Peter, probably feeling a little bit chastised, he follows along, but he kind of sneaks behind. He, he, he doesn't want anyone to know that he's following along with them. And then what we get is, when Jesus gets to the high priest's house, and you heard Julie read this, he gets, he gets questioned by the high priest, uh, Caiaphas, and and. Um, and, and, and we get this sort of split screen back and forth between Jesus and Peter. So, so first of all, we get Peter's first denial, where, where someone asks him, hey, I think I know you. You're, you're part of Jesus' entourage, right? The guy that's inside of the house right now. Weren't you a part of his group? And Peter denies it. And then we get, um, we get back into, we go back into the room where Jesus is at now, standing in front of the high priest in this interrogation, and he stands firm. In the midst of it. He's going through with this taking the cup on himself. And then we go back to Peter and and we get his second and third denial. And then after that we go back to Jesus when he goes to Pilate and does the same thing. He stands firm. And R.E. Brown, he's he's a commentator on the book of John, uh, points out this contrast for us. John has constructed a dramatic contrast wherein Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing. While Peter cowers before his questioners and denies everything. Okay, so we see these two people, one of them being faithful and the other being faithless. And this is the the next, I think, detail that is significant in telling to give us meaning of what's taking place on the cross is that Jesus remains faithful. He remains obedient. He remains standing firm and strong in what God has called him to do, to go to the cross, while Peter remains faithless. Jesus is—he is, does not fall even under harsh interrogation and persecution. He honors God uh, to the end. He does not try to accomplish his plan in any other way other than being faithful to give up his own life on behalf of people like Peter who remain uh, crumbling under pressure, faithless when what is needed, what would be needed you would think would be to him to stand up and honor Jesus. Okay, so Peter has first misunderstood what God is up to, he's bold to kind of go fight in the wrong way, and then he becomes, uh, he becomes kind of a coward when it actually would matter for him to stand up and, and honor Jesus and what he's up to. And he shrinks when faithfulness is needed. And so because of this, I would think that God's justice deserves to also be on Peter and, by implication, all of us. If God is going to be just, if God is going to be good in the world, he's going to do something about evil, he can't just do it about the bad guys, the people that we don't like, the people that Peter would maybe want to go cut the ear off of. He's got to do it for everybody, okay? Everyone gets caught up in this sort of unfaithfulness that we see exhibited from Peter here our faithlessness at the end of the day ends up being just as bad as Peter's. Because we're faithless to one another. Like people do not care for each other in the way which we expect. Right? People say that they do. Or we talk a good game, especially here in America, I think. We're really good at it. Right? We know how to go on social media and say the right things. We know how to talk a good game to people when we're talking with them. But, but really, like, we're, we're terrible at it. And, and I think we see the effects of that in society Every day, especially right now, right? We see the way in which the culture has been fragmented. Like 2020 seems like this sort of tectonic shift in, in history, right? But it's actually a pretty normal. It's actually pretty normal f- for the stuff that's going on. If you just look at the course of history, 2020 is just another year in a pretty long line of years like this. Where, where our faithfulness, our, our unwillingness to care and love one another results in total fragmentation. It results in death and, and injustice everywhere. Right? Um, We are faithless to one another. We're also faithless to ourselves. Right, If we were solely judged just on the consistency uh, uh, of what we, w- we thought what we were supposed to do all the time or what we said we would do, we would fail miserably at that too. We don't even live up to our own word. If, we were to, if someone were to actually, I've, I've heard Tim Keller talk about an invisible recorder that was tied around our neck and at the end of our lives someone pulled it off and played it back, we would be horrified to hear the types of things we claim to do or claim to believe and, and actually see how poorly we lived up to our own standard. We would, we would fail on that. And whether we like it or not, we're faithless to one another, we're faithless to ourselves, we're faithless to God himself. We're faithless to honor him when it matters, just like Peter is doing right now in, in, in this moment as Jesus himself is standing up and being faithful. And so intuitively, I think we feel that, but we often give ourselves a break. We often think it's okay for us. We should, you know, receive some grace and we shouldn't, you know, things shouldn't be so bad for us, but we for sure want the bad guys to get what's coming to them. And if we're being consistent, the same justice that needs to go to the people we don't like needs to come on us. We want justice to happen, but just not to us. And the Bible tells us in other places that that this is something that's common to all humanity, our sort of gravity-like propensity to fall short. And it's called sin. That's what the Bible calls it. Now, God is right to not let our faithlessness stand. He's just in not letting people's faithlessness in the world sort of tear apart the fabric of everything. he's, He's right to have consequences for that. He's right to do something about evil in the world. But he... What we find in the story of the cross is that Jesus is not going to let us be condemned by our unfaithfulness. On the cross, Jesus is going to take Peter's unfaithfulness on himself and give Peter and the rest of us his faithfulness, his obedience, his honoring of God, his being faithful to the very end, being obedient to God in the covenant. And he offers that to anyone who will accept it so that that's what we're defined by instead of our unfaithfulness. That is what is about to take place on the gospel, is G- on the cross, is Jesus' following through with the plan that's been given him. Now that, that, that last thing I just said there, Jesus' faithfulness to follow through on the plan as it's supposed to be worked out, sets up our next point here, detail number three that we see in the story of the crucifixion in John that both God and man are working in the same events. Now, you can read the narrative both ways. You, you can definitely read it in, in sort of like a, a way that says, you know, Jesus, then therefore God wants to go to the cross. But you can also see, and John does a good job of this throughout the whole book, kind of explaining what the authorities' mindset is, what why they think something needs to be done about this Jesus guy. We see sort of the cynicism and, and, and hip, hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders and of Pilate here, which we'll talk about in just a second, right? We see that they have a desire to crucify Jesus too. Both both parties want what's taking place, all right? So you think about it like this. I don't know if you've ever seen these, they're, they're called ambiguous images, all right? But look on the screen here. Okay, raise your hand if you see a rabbit right now. Okay, raise your hand if you see a duck. Okay, okay, nice. So would it shock you to know that both of those are in this picture? If you, if you learn to look at it right, you can see both a rabbit and a duck. Okay, look, let, let's look at this one. Raise your hand if you see an old lady. Okay, raise your hand if you see a young lady. Okay, right? Now, if you start to really look for both of them, you can see that both of these are true here. The old lady, um, you see her, her big nose and her chin and her hair on the top there, and she's kind of got her head down like this. But the young lady, she's turning her head away. And then and what, what is the, the, the nose of the old lady is actually like the cheek of the young lady. And you can, you can see her, she's kind of looking off the other way. Are you starting to see both of these now, right? When, when you kind of know what to look for? Similarly, in this last picture here, um, you can look at the ears of the rabbit and see also the bill of a duck, right? So you see kind of no matter which way you look at it, you can see both, both, both look right. So these are these, these sort of ambiguous images. Now, now, just like these images where you can kind of see both things going on at the same time, I think John is sort of trying to let us know, he's trying to present us with these ironies that let us know that both humans and God are working at the same time here. And if you take the right lens, the lens of faith, the, the lens of belief in Jesus, you can see God being faithful to work out his plan in the midst of what he, these you know these evil bad guys think are is their plan, all right? So so let, let's kind of look at one of the one of those ironies, and this comes in John nineteen nineteen to twenty. So Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross, and it read, "Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews." Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place was near w- w- place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Okay, so it was a common thing to to to, to nail the charge of whatever this person who's being crucified, to nail that onto the cross behind them, so that everybody would know if you do this thing, you're gonna end up like this loser up on the cross right now. Okay? And now Pilate's kind of a bully. The Romans came up. Pilate didn't come up with crucifixion, but what we know from historical sources uh, outside the Bible, there's other places where we learn about Pilate. Is he was he was kind of a bully. He wasn't really known for his subtlety. And, and actually, <laughs> a, a lot of a lot of scholars say he wasn't really known for his competency either. He was kind of a knucklehead, right? It, it, picture like an evil Michael Scott, and you have you have. Um, Pilate. All right, just just think about that. Not very good at his job and also a real jerk. Okay, that, that's Pilate. And so it so it seems like that he thought that sticking this message on there would be this sort of sort of shaming, sarcastic way to to let the Jewish people know what he thinks about him. To to say, here's what I think of you insignificant. Backwater Jewish people. Any king of yours deserves to be hung up on a cross like this. All right? this, is the, this is what a, any king of yours would deserve, was to be hung here. All right? And the Jewish leaders object to it, we, we see, and Pilate kind of goes through with it anyway because what we know, again, of Pilate is he liked to do whatever the opposite of the Jewish people wanted him to do. All right, And so sometimes we can read the story of Pilate and think he was kind of like uh, going along with what, what Jesus is, is, is saying here and wants to wash his hands of it, but really it's probably pretty cynical. He's probably just doing stuff to, to, sh- to kind of show his disdain for the Jewish people and their leaders. And so Pilate says... Basically, the crime of Jesus is to to claim that Israel even could have a king and that he was it. And he puts it in every language so everybody knows that Pilate thinks and that the Romans think that the Jewish people, any king of theirs deserves to end up like this. And so for the Romans, this is the Jewish king and all of his quote-unquote splendor. Right? A bloody, stinking, fly infested corpse hanging from a cross. That's what, that's what Pilate thinks of the Jewish people. That's what Pilate thinks of Jesus. I think it's good for us to, to get a sense for that, right? We, today, the, the, the cross for us is something we wear around our necks, it's something we hang on walls. Rightly, the, we as Christians have totally transformed what the cross is. But in the first century, it is a shameful thing. It is a disgusting thing. It's the kind of thing that would give you nightmares if you saw it. This, this, this crucifixion should disturb the reader, should disturb the hearer, both by, by, by what it is and by who it's being done to. It should make the reader at least feel or think for like a second. Man, do the, do the bad guys always win? Do the bullies always get their way? Does Thanos always snap his fingers and, and eliminate half of life on earth? Is that how things always go down? That's a, you should at least have the tinge of that in your mind. But John here, he takes the same image, he takes the same age, image and says, yes, this is the king in all of his glory, in all of his splendor. Here you see him in the glory of God himself because you see him in love. You see him in humility You see him in in grace, you see him in sacrifice, you see him in bearing the sin of others, bearing the sins of those who will be his subjects, who will call him king. You see him humbly bearing those instead of them. You see him being faithful and giving that faithfulness to a group of people who are completely unfaithful. And in that, John says, you are seeing the king in all his glory and splendor. If you have the lens or the the eyes to see this, you can see what God is up to. And that in fact, people like Pilate, people who, you know, the guys who seem to think that they run the world and they're going to let everybody know it in in any way possible, they don't run the world at all. Actually, God does and he works through the types of things that bullies like Pilate like to do in order to accomplish His purpose accomplish his purpose and to show himself in all of his 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 sacrificial humble loving glory that's what we're seeing right here and so while our decisions and the decisions of other people even those in charge matter history is not the product of people like Pilate. it's the history of jesus it's the history of god being faithful to accomplish his purposes and so our application today is that we will see ourselves in the story when we look at peter And we will see the bullies of the world when we look at Pilate, right? We we should not read this story and miss that it does speak to us today, that we will pop up in the story in different places. It'll speak to our hearts as we fear that bullies like Pilate win, right? And there are lots of bullies in the world, and you can find them anywhere you go, right? It's not hard to find people who are trying to, to, to get their agenda across and don't really care what happens to people in the midst of that. That's easy to find, right? And it's easy to think that those people really run the world. It's also easy to, uh, to get turned into bullies by sin as well for ourselves. It's also easy for us to be completely unfaithful to honoring God, to loving him well. And so, so no matter which way we look, we're going to end up seeing ourselves in the story to a degree. Now good news for Peter is he gets a redemption story in that epilogue. So, so I've been really hard on Peter today, but don't worry. He, John, John tries to give him a little bit of redemption at the very end of the book. But, but the application here for us now, the second point of application is that Jesus is gonna save us from both. It's all about Jesus. He defeats our real enemy the right way, not the wrong way. He's faithful to deliver us when we ourselves were faithless and, he is, and, and the bullies don't run the world, but Jesus does. Okay, there's hope. We have a, a uniquely Christian hope that, that we don't have to be cynical. We don't have to look at the world and think, man, everyone is messed up or "They're just the, the bullies are running everything. We can believe that God does justice and that we, if we are in Christ, we are not judged by our faithful, faithlessness but by Jesus' faithfulness. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pray to cl- uh, close us here and then I'm gonna lead us in communion, all right? So I'll explain it here in just a s- second but let me pray first. Lord, we thank you that as we read through the book of John, as we, we take a look at, at the story of the cross, a story that for us that have been Christians, uh, many of us for a long time can become kind of stale and kind of familiar. We talk about it all the time. Lord, it is the center of everything we believe, and if we're honest, sometimes that can mean it gets a little bit boring. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would give us a lens to see what is going on in the story of the crucifixion as John wants to tell it to us, Lord, and as the rest of the Bible wants to draw out the implications of what's taking place on there, Lord, and, and, and how it connects to us in our lives now, Lord. And whatever it looks like, Lord, whether we are, we are, exp- we are under the, the boot of some some bad people in the world, some bullies. We fear them in some way, whether we are aware of our own unfaithfulness, God, whether we are are overwhelmed by it or whether we are trying to sweep that under the rug. I pray that you would bring that out to us, Lord, that we could see those two things clearly, whether it's the evil in the world or our own unfaithfulness, our own complicity in that, God, that we would see that clearly and that we would also see Jesus clearly. Clearly. We would see clearly what you are doing in your son, Jesus, as you, as you faithfully draw him to the cross so that he may become the true king and may deliver us from our unfaithfulness, God. I pray that that would be our hope as we go out of this place this morning and every single day, Lord. We pray this in the name of our King Jesus. Amen.